Take your Bibles. Go to Philippians. Philippians. We're going to be in chapter 1. Um, might, might I share just a, a quick update? Please continue to pray for our families and friends who are traveling uh, on the other side of the world right now, um, visiting co-workers in Jesus Christ. I won't name location nor names right now. Um, I will, actually, I'll take that, take that back. I will name this name. The Bookers. Continue to pray for the Bookers as they seek what God would have them to do. Um, have received lots of positive things. Uh, our brothers and sisters who were traveling um, on the 16-hour flight Thursday into Friday uh, uh, arrived safely. All of their luggage arrived as far as we know, so we praise God for that. Uh, and so they'll be traveling around uh, that part of the world a lot in the next few days. So continue to remember them in prayer as they, as they travel. Lots of really good reports coming back, and I'm really anxious to have them back with us and share with us what's going on there. So, um, Philippians chapter 1, um, I have the unenviable task because of a snow day to cover two messages in one. Yeah, if there was ever a guy who could talk fast enough to pull it off, I may be that guy. So um, listen fast. <laughs> We'll see what happens. Um, Philippians, just by way of introduction, in case you haven't caught this yet, Paul is the one who is writing to the Philippians, and you need to understand who Paul was. Paul was Saul, one of the greatest persecutors in the history of the church. He was arresting Christians. He was voting for their death penalties. He was, he was continuing to put the pressure on the early church. He was murdering them. He was, he was doing all kinds of different things, and, and he was actually on his way to arrest more Christians in Acts chapter 9 on his road to Damascus, and, and, and he's riding along, and then Jesus appears to him, knocks him off his horse, and blinds him, and says, pretty hard for you to resist me, isn't it, Saul? Now, I don't know what uh, realm of theological discussion you land in. I don't know where you land in the, ar- the argument between Arminianism and Calvinism, between election and free will, but I'm pretty sure it's safe to assume if God shows up, knocks you off your horse, blinds you, and then taunts you, you're elect. So, that's kind of what happened with Paul. So, so Paul's been brought into the Christian fold. He is now a Christian. Instead of being a murderer of Christians, he is now a church planter. Go figure, huh? Um, and so as he um, gets into his ministry, he goes on his first missionary journey. He plants a number of churches, and then he's done with his first missionary journey. He's about to start his second missionary journey, and he begins heading west. He gets to the northern edge of Asia and thinks, I'm going to head into Asia. And God says, nope, not Asia. So then he thinks, okay, then I'll go north into Bithynia. And God says, nope, not Bithynia. You just keep moving west. So as Paul and Silas continue moving west, they end up in a place called Troas. While in Troas, Paul's sleeping and God appears to him in a dream, in a vision. And, and this Macedonian man calls out to him, come to Macedonia and help us. And so Paul sits down with Silas and those traveling with him and and talks through the call of God in their lives. They decide this must be from God. They head to Macedonia. They end up in this place called Philippi. At Philippi, he meets a a lady named Lydia. Talked about her a few times. She's a CEO, a seller of purple. She's down at the river listening to the reading of the law. And Paul sits down with her and explains to her how Jesus Christ came and fulfilled the law for her. And paid the price for her sin. And she gloriously comes in to the family of God. We talked about the demoniac girl who pursued Paul and Silas around town, mocking salvation and mocking the the apostles of God. And then finally, Paul just gets annoyed and casts the demons out. And now that young lady is found by the very salvation she had been mocking. 
They get thrown into jail as a result of casting out demons from this girl, and there's a jailer in there who's the rough and tumble type, and Paul and Silas, deciding that the acoustics were really good in the jail cell, begin to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, and an earthquake comes, and it breaks the shackles, and as the jailer is ready to bring an end to himself, he finds Jesus through the preaching and sharing of Paul. That's the beginning of this Philippian church. So now, fast forward 11 years, the Philippian church has been established. Paul hasn't visited the Philippians for some four years, and he had communicated to the Philippians a number of times that he, he really wanted to go to Rome. Not, not for vacation, but Rome is the central place in the empire. So to get to Rome and be able to stand in front of the, the amphitheaters of people and preach the gospel of Jesus, well, and if that took hold, then everything flowed out of Rome. And, and the gospel would certainly circle the globe or the known world at the time. So he just longed to be in Rome and preach the gospel there. And the Philippians knew that. And before the writing of this book, they find that Paul, in fact, is in Rome, but not the way he had expected. Instead of traveling there to, to share the gospel and the preaching of the gospel in front of crowds, he had been arrested and falsely accused. He had been bound and sent to Rome as a prisoner. Along the way, he had a huge shipwreck. And now he's in Rome under house arrest. And the Philippian church, hearing about that, is concerned about his health, concerned about his well-being, concerned about his provision, they're concerned about his, his very life. So they take up an offering and they give it to a fellow named Epaphroditus, who we'll talk about in a few weeks. And Epaphroditus carries this, this very generous offering to Paul and they tell him, Epaphroditus, go find Paul in prison and tell him we love him, tell him we care for him, tell him we're, we're concerned for him and give him this gift so he can get the food or whatever he wants while he's there. Epaphroditus, there's a lot of drama in the middle there, which I'll skip for time's sake, but Epaphroditus finds Paul, gives him the gift and when Paul receives the gift, in response, he sits down and he pens a letter. And that letter is this book of Philippians. Throughout the letter, what you hear over and over again is the joy in Paul's soul bubbling up over and over and over again. So he writes to this church to encourage them. He writes to warn them about a few things. He, he writes to tell a few people to get along because they're not really getting along. But in the middle of all those things, what he continues to say to them is, focus on what matters most. So he begins, in our passage here, I'll start reading in verse 12, he begins by saying, man, I heard you were concerned about me. Verse 12, now I want you to know, my brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. So that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everybody else that my imprisonment is because I am in Jesus Christ. So, so I heard you were concerned about me, but he says, don't you worry, this difficulty isn't being wasted. This, this, so, so he's been arrested, they had hoped to stop Paul from preaching the gospel, so they arrest him, they, they chain him, they're hoping to break Paul, and Paul says, no, no, I'm not wasting this opportunity. This opportunity of my imprisonment actually has served to advance the gospel. That word advance is a word that was used in Paul's day to describe the, the federal lumberjacks, for lack of a better term. These, these guys would go out into the woods and clear cut the woods so that the armies could follow them and, and, and travel easier as they would go and attack other places. 
And so he says that to, to, to advance the gospel, the picture is these guys clear-cut in the woods. So, and, Jesus, and, and Paul says what's happened right now is it's a clear-cut. The gospel continues to advance in places it never would have gone before. As he looks at his difficulty, he says, this is blazing a trail under house arrest, day in and day out, handcuffed to a guard. And, and not just any average guard. This is... This isn't just a jailer like in the Philippian jailer. These are the, these are the imperial guard. These were the elites. This was special ops. Um, uh, um, I just forgot his name. Caesar, uh, Augustus. Caesar Augustus. I remembered his name. Caesar Augustus is the one that established this group. It's 9,000 hand-picked soldiers. And they, they, were, they were the ones who basically ran everything militarily for the emperor himself. And so while he was being held in house arrest... Every day, every moment of every day, he had chains on his wrists, and, and some have, have tried to do the, the historical archaeological, it's hard to determine, but the, the, the length of chain would probably be about two feet long, and the other end of the chain would be attached to one of the imperial guards. He was never free. He was never on his own. He was always connected to one fella at a time. And so while Paul didn't get to preach to amphitheaters filled with thousands of people, he had the regular opportunity to preach to one dude at a time for hours. So remember that whole elect comment? If you're attached to the Apostle Paul for hours, count on it, you're elect. Um, you're going to come into contact with who Jesus is. So as Paul talks to these individuals about Jesus, he's, this, this individual, this imperial guard, would leave Paul and have conversations with one of his other fellow soldiers, and so the discussion would, would happen there. And next thing you know, you've got 9,000 soldiers talking about Jesus, and the gospel has advanced to the headquarters of the Roman Empire, so much so that at the conclusion of the book that we're studying, the conclusion of the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 22, Paul says this, all the saints here in Rome send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. That never would have happened had it not been for this imprisonment. So through, through Paul's chains and through his, his difficulty, Paul had opportunity to be used in a way that, that a whole mess of fellas who had never heard the true story of the gospel now had. So, I'm going to get a little metaphorical for you here to try to make applications. Some of you, some of you feel chained to your desk Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. Some of you stay-at-home moms feel chained to your house. Some of you feel chained to your work truck. Teachers may feel chained to your school uh, classrooms. Students can feel chained to their, their schedules. Some of you, because of different physical infirmities and, and health issues, may feel like you are chained to the hospital at times, even treatments. And, and some of us, have, because of those feelings, have asked ourselves the question, why am I stuck here, God? You're not stuck. You're not stuck. You're in a situation where God's bringing people into your world and giving you an opportunity to speak of him. Your difficulty is not in vain. It's for your good, and it's for the good of the people who are coming in contact with you. As Americans, we long for the big, showy purpose, don't we? That's, that's an American thing. We, we want the flashy. We want the big. We want it to be famous. We want it to be fast. We want it to just go out, oh! and the way God works is in small, quiet, and slow ways. 
See, see, here's the problem. We, we think we, we need a mission, we need a purpose, and we're going to commute to go get it. And in fact, you don't commute to mission. Mission is where you live. Mission is where you work. You don't get to commute. God brings it to you. No matter what the difficulty may look like, no matter how challenging it may be, God brings it to you. So what are you doing with your difficulty? For, for Paul, he was using it as an opportunity to share the love of Jesus with the guards. And as a result, other people in Rome, and seeing this in Paul, other people in Rome were, were feeling emboldened. And for some, it was great. For some, they're out there, and they're just sharing the gospel all over the place because, because Paul's an inspiration to them. They're, they're amazed that God would continue to care for Paul in such a way, and, and Paul would be so faithful, so they, in turn, would also share the gospel with other people. But for others, instead of it being out of good motives, it was a chance for other people to seek to bury Paul where he was and to claim his, his position, his influence, and his status for themselves while they shared the gospel. Look, look at verse, verse 14. Most of the brothers here have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment, and they dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. Now to be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, others out of goodwill. These, the ones out of goodwill, they preach out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. Those others who are preaching out of envy, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking they're going to cause me trouble in my imprisonment. Listen to Paul's response. What does it matter? Let, let, let's, let's frankism that. Who cares? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. So here, this is an amazing thing. Paul says not only are we, difficulty isn't to be wasted, but even disrespect, it ain't a big deal. He's not even concerned about it. I mean, what were these people saying about Paul? We don't know for sure, but you kind of get the idea that they're saying, well, we know the real inside scoop about Paul. I mean, you, you've seen the thorn in his flesh, right? That obviously was God trying to hinder him and keep him away from the ministry because he shouldn't be used. Now he's in prison. I mean, I mean God's like, I'm done with that, Paul. Stick him in prison. He's got a secret sin in his life, I'm telling you. He must be trying to raise funds for his jet. He's up to something. He's up to something. You can't trust that Paul. And you don't know what he's saying, but what, what, what Paul says is, who cares? I'm not the motive police. As long as the gospel is being presented, then by all means, bash me. Now, I do want to point something out to you. It's very important you understand the difference between this here in Philippians, where Paul says, they're, they're, they're coming at me, they're, they're trying to tear me down, and then what he says in Galatians. It's very different. See, Philippians, he says, their motives, I'm not going to be the motive police. As long as the gospel of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed, I'm going to rejoice. But in the book of Galatians, let me put this up here for you. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, it says this. I am amazed. This is his message to the church of Galatia. I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Jesus Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is a different gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we've preached to you, a curse be on him. You see the difference, right? See, see the difference is, in Galatia, they're, they're, they're preaching a defective gospel. 
In Philippians, it's not the gospel that's defective, it's the people. It's the motives. And so he says, no, 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 I don't have time to be the motive police. I do have time to stand for the truth of the gospel. But I don't have time to be the, the motive police. And yes, I suspect their motives aren't pure. But I also know that despite their impure motives, that gospel truth is being presented. So let God take care of the motives. And let's rejoice that they're not compromising the gospel because I'm more concerned about the gospel going out than everybody liking me. I'm more concerned about the light of Jesus Christ and his glory shining bright than my star not fading. What in the world would happen in 2019? The followers of Jesus Christ took this example of Paul instead of following the example of the world around us. I'm pretty sure you see it. In the world around us, If you disagree with the smallest of points that I may have, if you differ from me in the slightest of opinions, then you tear me up. That's the way we debate now. You differ? Then you must be in Satan's camp. Man, the followers of Jesus have to do better than that. We, we, must, we, we, we must remember, just because we're different doesn't mean that we are anti-each other. It doesn't mean we're against each other. So let me, let me lay out some, some traditional church things that cause that conflict. So, so does your church do contemporary music or, or hymns? Does your church differ on what version of the Bible you use? I mean, I've got the big initials on mine, so that's the version we use because that's the one Paul used. <laughs> I figured I'd get at least one of those ones. Do you use a pulpit or do you not use a pulpit? And that ain't a pulpit. Do you wear a suit? A tie? Pants? That's where we draw the line, in case you're wondering. That's it. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. It doesn't matter. Those are all instant. Pants matter. Everything else doesn't matter. It's all insignificant in the way it, 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 it interacts. And please hear me. If you're a guest at Uniontown Bible Church, I know how this works, okay? I understand. A lot of times pastors will get up and they'll do this and be like, huh, and make it all funny and because he's trying to be passive aggressive to zing a few people in the congregation. I praise God none of that's true here. I do. I have the freedom to actually probably get myself in trouble is what I have the freedom to do. But I have the freedom to, to be, be honest with you. It's like, listen, I, I don't want to elevate myself on a pedestal where I wear a suit and nobody else does so you know who the pastor is. I want to walk around in the lobby and for people to be like, any one of these people could be the pastor as, as, as long as they don't have hair. That's a, that's a pastoral requirement. But, but we, we have that freedom here. We're not going to, I'm not, we are not. It's not an I'm. We, as a church, are not going to waste our time on those insignificant differences. We will fight for the truth of the gospel like Paul did in Galatia. But we're not going to fight about things that, that make much of who we are and stop making much of who Jesus is. So, so as long as the truth about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is being spoken of, Paul says, I rejoice! And, and just to make it clear, he, re- he repeats it. No, I rejoice! I know you're not going to believe me. I really do rejoice. There's um, a story, uh, time, I think, uh, okay. What I'll do is I'll post the details of the story on Facebook later this afternoon. But there's um, uh, men in the Methodist um, movement way back in the day, George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers, John and Charles, used to be really tight buddies. And then they had a falling out over theological issues. And, and 
They were somewhat significant, but actually, to be honest, they were secondary or, or further down the line. But there was heartache and heartbreak. Um, George Whitfield makes the comment that he got together with John and Charles Wesley to try to work through their issues because they wanted to be just that close again, and they, they couldn't get past it. He said, you know, I wish people could have been in the room and seen how Charles Wesley and I just bawled as we prayed that we could be brought together as brothers again. But, but we just, it just couldn't happen. And so, so that conflict lasted for years until finally John Wesley passed away. And somebody who was interviewing George Whitfield asked him, do you think that when you get to heaven, you are going to see John Wesley? And George Whitfield didn't even bat an eye. He was like, nope. And the interviewer was like, huh? You don't think John Wesley was a converted follower of Jesus Christ? And George Whitfield said, I didn't say that. I said I wouldn't see him in heaven. Because I believe John Wesley is going to be so close to the throne of God. And I will be so very far away. I'll never lay eyes on him. Why can't we disagree like that? See, that's what a follower of Jesus does. He doesn't let uh, our greatest good be about our preference. It doesn't let our particular strain of theological leanings become the thing that divides us. Well, how, how do you live like that? What, what, what motivates that? What, what drives that? How can we overlook difficulty and even disrespect that's chucked at us every day? Well, let's look at the example of Paul. Verse 18. What does it matter only in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will continue to rejoice, because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life, or by death. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I, and I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I, I long to depart to be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So since I'm persuaded of this, I, I know I'm going to remain and continue with all of you for your progress and join the faith so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Jesus Christ may abound. How do we look past difficulty and even disrespect that is thrown our way? It's by remembering that Jesus comes first. Christ is enough. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Difficulty and disrespect, those things will not define me. I am so confident in who Jesus is and what he's doing. I'm sure I'm going to be delivered. Now, we don't know what that deliverance is going to look like. I may be delivered by acquittal. I may be delivered by death. Either way, I'm delivered. I'm sure he's going to work. I am confident because both acquittal and death, those are a win for me. I'm confident that Jesus won't let me down, that he won't let you down, because he's never let anybody down. It is all about him. He is more valuable than my comfort, and he's more valuable than the respect that I have. And I'm going to make much of Jesus in life, or I'm going to make much of Jesus in death. Paul says, I can't lose. So in every situation, difficulty and disrespect, Jesus is first. So how do you go to work this week and get berated again and still live like Jesus is enough? How are you able to face your latest and biggest heartbreak 
and still be able to worship with a heart that exclaims that Christ is enough. You need to have the bigger picture. You need real joy. Not, not happiness. Joy. And joy doesn't come from that, that delight that everything's going my way. That's not joy. I used this last week, and I told you to get used to it because I'm going to use it a lot. I changed one word, though. Joy comes from a healthy biblical understanding of this. Didn't, couldn't, do, and gonna. Didn't, couldn't, do, and gonna. It's the fact that I didn't have peace with God. I didn't have hope. I didn't have an answer to my sin problem. And I couldn't do anything about it myself. God loved me. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, for me. So that while I was still sinning, Jesus died for me. And now, because of Jesus, I do have peace. I do have hope. I do have a confidence that I stand before God fully forgiven, accepted, loved, and redeemed. And, and as beautiful as that is, that's just a little taste of what's going to come. Because it's going to be a whole lot better than that when we see him face to face. You want to know what the true source of joy is? It's knowing how well Jesus loved you. And when you understand that fully, when you run that gamut from this is where I was and I couldn't do anything about it, but Jesus Christ did this for me, and man, I can't wait to see him face to face. There is joy that flows from you. So what Paul says is this, that joy causes me to know that I am living to make much of Jesus Christ, living to, to point to Christ, living to serve Jesus Christ, and dying means I get to be with him. I win. Paul's joy wasn't born out of Paul. It was fully connected with how well Jesus loved him. And as a result, Paul wanted to do nothing but honor Christ. In the middle of difficulty, in the middle of disrespect, in all of his life, because Jesus was his greatest treasure. Is he yours? No, uh, but Frank, I, I'm saved. I know Jesus Christ. That's great. That's not what I asked. Is he your greatest treasure? It, 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 does he consume you? Are you devoted to him? That doesn't mean carrying a Bible to church on Sunday. Being devoted to him means the world around you sees you and knows not, oh, there's something different because he's so moral. No, 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 no. The world around you looks at you and knows there's something different because they see the love of Christ emanating from you, both word and in deed. Is Jesus your greatest treasure? Or do you have idols in your life? Now, I don't think anybody in Uniontown's got, got idols tucked away in their garage that they burn incense to every night. We sure have our idols, don't we? You want to know if it's an idol? Kill it for a month and see how often your mind wanders back to that idol. Maybe it's your phone. Maybe it's your, your greatest toy. Maybe it's television. Maybe it's authority. Get rid of it for a month. You'll be able to tell if it's an idol or not. And what we're called to is to shed all of those idols. Because Christ is to be our greatest treasure.
Is it yours? Is it yours? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word, for the reminders we have in it. Thank you that we, through the word of Paul, can read ourselves into his situation so very easily. None of us are in prison, but we're all facing difficulty. All of us tend to wander towards the things that that, that crave our own attention. So, so Lord, help us today to be so committed to Jesus and Jesus alone that we shed all of those other things. May we fix our eyes on Christ and Christ alone. May he be our greatest treasure. Lord, I ask for the, the one who's with us this morning who doesn't know Jesus, who's depending on their good works, their good church attendance, their, their, their family uh, history, Lord, for that one who's here and has not placed their faith and trust in Christ, I pray right now they would understand the same thing that Paul understood, that Lydia understood, that the demoniac girl understood, that the Philippian jailer understood, that salvation comes through Christ and Christ alone. So may they confess with their mouths that they're a sinner and they need a Savior. And today, they heard about him, Jesus Christ. Father, may they run to the throne of grace. For the rest of us who have known you for some time, whether it be a short time or a long time, God, renew, renew our passion for you. Renew our commitment for you. And may our focus, our gaze, our attention be on Jesus and Jesus alone. It's in his good name I pray. Amen.